Morning, everyone. This is your host, David Rayburn, and today we are sitting down with Dr. Uh, Mavish Rahim, who is a fellow in Hemonk at Riley Hospital for Children. So welcome, Mavish. Thank you. Just a little uh, fun fact. So we uh, went to medical school together. And we're anatomy lab partners. And we were anatomy lab partners, and now we find ourselves uh, at Indiana University together. Small world. I know, right? Um, so, uh, Dr. Rahim's going to help us through the challenging sea of anemias. Um, what's macrocytic, what's microcytic, how to best remember that for the boards. When we were talking before this, I think we have a pretty dense content here, so we may end up splitting this into multiple episodes. Yeah, I think that that would work really well to kind of split it up and just focus in on how to differentiate based on the size of red blood cells and then go further from there. All right. Well, you know, if you look at the board content outline, um, it's about 2.5%. So that's a a good chunk of information. Um, That's all of hemonc total, but these are things that are definitely going to come up on the boards for you. So we'll get started with nutritional anemias, but then when you and I were talking, it seems like maybe breaking them up into macrocytic and microcytic might be an easier way for... Yeah, and I think if we start thinking about it, when we start thinking about macrocytic, we'll get two of our nutritional anemias um, right off the bat over there. So I guess the first question in pediatrics, which is always very interesting, is our MCV, our normocytic values, are different based on age, as is everything in pediatrics, age-dependent. But a good trick for that is the MC, a normocytic MCV should be equal to an MCV, it should be equal to 70 plus the patient's age starting at two years of age. Um, so that's a good reference range to kind of go off of. When we're looking at macrocytic anemias, there are four main things that we can think about, um, two of which are nutritional anemias, so vitamin B12 deficiency and folic acid deficiency. Both are going to cause your um, macrocytic anemias. Differentiating between the two, vitamin B12 deficiencies are typically going to be seen in that, stem, in that question stem that has a vegan family or a vegetarian family. So once you lack that meat intake, you're going to start seeing some vitamin B12 deficiency. Keeping in mind that there are other causes as well, pernicious anemia, and you can go down other tracks, but most commonly on the boards, they want us to know about that vegetarian family. Differentiating that from folic acid deficiency, which can also cause a macrocytic anemia, the, stem, the PEDS boards loves to give you the STEM question with goat's milk. So a child who's only drinking goat's milk typically will be folic acid deficient and resulting in a macrocytic anemia. Yeah, and those are definitely those high-yield, like, board-ready type things. Like you said, vegan, B12 deficiency, goat's milk, folate deficiency. I think that's key. I think if you remember those two two points, you'll get down those two nutritional anemias very easily. Um, The other two macrocytic anemias are less high-yield on the boards, but good for clinical practice. Um, is any bone marrow failure can result in a macrocytic anemia. And if you think about why, it's your bone marrow is not making the proper hemoglobin, so your body reverts back to making fetal hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobin, I like to think of as fetal hemoglobin is big and fluffy, and so it's macrocytic, and that's why when you see those newborn MCVs, they're all 120 and no one bats an eye at those. And then our fourth macrocytic anemia um, etiology is hypothyroidism. Not much research into why hypothyroidism will cause macrocytic anemia, but that can definitely be one of the causes. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. Just All right. So we'll, we'll recap real quick. So folate deficiency, B12 deficiency, 
bone marrow failure, and hypothyroidism are your macrocytic anemias. Yeah, and I think keeping in mind that vitamin B12 is associated with vegans and vegetarians, folic acid with goat milk, and that will be your high yield. Just in case you guys didn't get that the first three times we said it, we're going to say it a fourth time. So, <laughs> All right. Should we talk about microcytic yeah. anemias? So microcytic anemias, there's a nice um, mnemonic that kind of helps lay, lay them out for you. So your microcytic anemia, the mnemonic is TAILS. So T for thalassemia, A for anemia of chronic disease, which can also be normocytic. So that's kind of a curveball there. I for iron deficiency anemia, L for lead poisoning, and S for sideroblastic anemia. The boards really wants you to focus in on the differences between iron deficiency anemia and thalassemia. So I think if we focus on those two and know the rest, it should be pretty high yield. So speaking about iron deficiency anemia, your typical board stem question is going to give you that toddler who is drinking tons of milk. And the reason for that is milk is high in calcium, and a lot of those dairy calcium-heavy products eventually, essentially will um, inhibit the absorption of iron from your gut. And so if you have no iron absorption from your gut, you have no iron to make your hemoglobin or your red blood cell or make your red blood cells with. Um, iron deficiency anemia is typically microcytic. That- I think that this is one, too, that, that's the very high yield on the boards where, and it's also why we get a hemoglobin on our one-year-old at their one-year-old visit is they're starting to transition to cow's milk, and often you'll see that maybe the parents transition to cow's milk earlier, and then now they have this anemia, and you look at the MCV, and it's going to be low, and then you're, and the answer is why? Because they're drinking too much cow's milk. Yeah, that's basically the rundown of it. And while drinking too much milk is going to be the main thing that we see, keeping in mind just for clinical practice, you can have blood loss, Crohn's disease, a lot of different etiologies for losing that iron. Um, And also just children who don't want to eat that much. They could be picky eaters. So decreased absorption, increased loss, or decreased intake. Iron deficiency is not only important because it can be a cause of anemia, but it can also drop those IQ points, so very important to have good iron levels. That being said, when a pediatrician is suspicious of iron deficiency anemia, you can get your iron studies. Um, The most important way to remember those, I think, is everything is low except for your total iron binding capacity, which is high because they're ready to bind to iron that's not there. But ferritin will be low, iron saturation will be low, and iron levels will be low. Uh, that's definitely one I would commit to memory too, because they'll give you one of those charts and they okay. show you what's high, what's low, and it's up to you to piece that together to fix, figure out which one is iron deficiency anemia. Yeah, so definitely. definitely listen to that again so you can commit that to memory. So just to say that one more time, everything will be low, but your total iron binding capacity or your TIBC will be elevated in iron deficiency anemia. Working to treat that, you're going to give um, about 3 to 6 milligrams per kilogram of elemental iron for at least three months to help build up those stores. But you should start seeing your CBC um, having resolution of that anemia within the first month of treatment. That being said, iron is very nasty tasting, and those children do not like to take it. It can cause some GI upset as well, so compliance is a big issue. Any tricks of the trade for uh, getting kids to take their iron? From what I've heard, Novaferum is the better iron supplement to give. Tastes better. <laughs> that is not an endorsement. That <laughs> no, is just... <laughs> <that's true. laughs> no way. All right. Um, 
but no other tricks other than just forcing it down and making sure that they're not taking it with calcium-containing products. So not giving iron with milk, since that will inhibit the absorption, but rather giving it with orange juice or something acidic. Very good. Um, let's say that parent is very compliant and the child is taking their iron supplement, but you're not seeing improvement in that microcytic anemia. One of the things the board wants you to tease out is if compliance is not an issue, that microcytic anemia is not resolving because there might be an actual thalassemia. So remembering thalassemia is one of our microcytic anemias, if we go back to that mnemonic, TAILS, the T is for thalassemia. Um, thalassemia can result in microcytic anemia, and in this situation, the hemoglobin is not being made appropriately. So it's a qualitative defect in the hemoglobin um, process. So oftentimes we hear about the Mensner index as a tool to differentiate between thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia. So the Mensner index is calculated as your MCV divided by red blood cells. Both are microcytic, um, so both thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia will have small MCVs, but the difference comes down to that red blood cell quantity. In iron deficiency anemia, the red blood cells will be low because you do not have iron to make the red blood cells. In thalassemia, the red blood cells are elevated because the body can make the red blood cells. Their quality is poor, so the body just keeps churning out more red blood cells. So with the Mensner index, you have a small MCV divided by a small red blood cell, giving you a value of greater than 13, which falls in line with iron deficiency anemia. And if it's a thalassemia, you have a small MCV divided by a big red blood cell count, giving you a number less than 13 consistent with a thalassemia. All right. That's definitely a good thing to keep in mind, I think. Yeah, I think the key is, even if you don't remember the calculation and those numbers, if you see an iron deficiency anemia that's not getting better with iron supplementation, start having those bells go off in your head that there might be a thalassemia. All right. So I think the, you know, I think you mentioned from the tails mnemonic, the anemia of chronic disease can kind of be a mimicker, so I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, but the other part of tails worth so, discussing, you think? Yeah, so I think we can touch on, so we said T is for thalassemia, A, anemia of chronic disease, I for iron deficiency anemia, L for lead levels being elevated, keeping in mind that when your lead is too high, it is essentially inhibiting iron absorption into the hemoglobin process. And so you're essentially creating an iron deficiency anemia with elevated lead levels. That being said, I think the boards are going to start questioning about when you need to start chelating for elevated lead levels more than maybe with the microcytic anemias. Um, and then S is a sideroblastic anemia, um, which I have not seen commonly on the boards, but I think key is just remembering that there might be peripheral iron staining on a peripheral smear. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. And just to wrap things up with thalassemias, um, one of the board content specs is to try and make sure you have the appropriate diagnostic evaluation in place. So we talked a little bit about the Mensner index and differentiating between thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia, but once you have a thalassemia, um, it's important to remember that you can either have a beta thalassemia or an alpha thalassemia, so which globin is being um, made in improperly. I think for the boards, the best thing to kind of keep in mind is that a beta thalassemia will show itself on a hemoglobin electrophoresis, and an alpha thalassemia, you will need genetic testing and will not show up on electrophoresis. Great point. So I think we did a good job in covering a lot of the microcytic and macrocytic anemias and getting all of that high-yield content out of there. 
Um, we now fall into this world of normocytic anemias, which is which can be rather expansive because it includes any hemoglobinopathy or many hemoglobinopathies, but I think the most high-yield and most questioned one will be sickle cell disease. The most important thing to remember is sickle cell disease is a normocytic anemia. Many people like to think it's microcytic, but it's normocytic. Um, so sickle cell disease, if we remember back to medical school, has that mutation from a glutamine to a valine at the amino acid level of DNA. The most important thing the board wants you to remember is that sickle cell disease is diagnosed at birth and thanks to the advances in our newborn screen technology. And the minute that sickle cell disease is identified, these patients are started on prophylactic penicillin, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, so while the diagnosis of sickle cell can be made at birth on that newborn screen, it is often confirmed by electrophoresis at six months to nine months of age when your hemoglobin F starts to go down, and you can start seeing more of that hemoglobin S, that sickled hemoglobin, showing itself. Sickle cell has many different clinical presentations. Um, the earliest clinical presentation you'll see at a young age is dactylitis or sausage fingers, often happening because our blood vessels to our hands are so small, and when you take a baby's blood vessels to their hands, they're even smaller, so that's a perfect place for those sickle cells to, um, to accumulate and cause a pain crisis. Children can't necessarily tell you they're in pain, so it's a lot of those good pediatrician skills and picking up nonverbal cues of fussiness and agitation in a little baby. As the patients get older, we start to see more typical pain crises. Um, acute chest is another complication, preopism, strokes, retinopathy, so many different things that have to be managed. I think the most important things for the boards are keeping in mind acute chest, so any fever in a sickle cell patient can be an emergency is an emergency, and when you find that chest uh, when you find a chest X-ray infiltrate, you are dealing with acute chest, and you need to start giving antibiotics, gentle hydration, um, and keeping in mind the most important antibiotics are ceftriaxone and azithromycin and acute chest syndrome. So just to recap, kind of I think that our high yields here is the glutamine, glutamine to valine um, amino acid. Mutation. I think that that is certainly something that could come up. That initial presentation with the dactylitis and the sausage digits, that also I think is probably something that's fairly high yield. And then another thing that you and I were discussing kind of offline here is I think most likely you're going to be presented with potential complications of sickle cell. And acute chest certainly one that you don't want to miss. And, you, you know, obviously in clinical practice, but two, on a board question where you see a kid with a fever, you know, that has sickle cell and they're tachypneic, uh, you certainly want to get that chest x-ray and get antibiotics started. Yes, definitely. It's, um, it can be very life-threatening in sickle cell patients. Um, another really big complication is a splenic sequestration, and the board really wants you to know about that. The manage, uh, splenic sequestration, you'll start noticing that hemoglobin level dropping even more than their baseline because they're already at a little bit of, a norm, uh, a little bit of an anemia. Um, but you'll also notice their platelet count dropping because all of those platelets and hemoglobin are being sequestered into the spleen. The board will want you to know that you're supposed to do a gentle transfusion, meaning only about 5 mLs per kg of packed red blood cells to be transfused. The thought there is that as you're giving that transfusion, the spleen is going to start auto-transfusing or releasing some of those sequestered um, platelets and red blood cells. You're hemoglobin will have a bigger jump than you would otherwise expect. 
um, eventually all of these sickle cell patients are going to become functionally asplenic if not having an anatomical splenectomy before that time. Um, because of that, this puts them at a really increased risk for those encapsulated bacterias. So what our patients, so the sickle cell patients will typically be started on penicillin prophylaxis from the minute of diagnosis until at least five years of age. So what magically happens at five years that you're able to stop the penicillin? The thought there is that you would have gotten all of your AAP-recommended vaccines, but in addition, you would have had a 23-valent pneumococcal vaccine as well as a meningitis vaccine to help give that extra boost of protection against those encapsulated bacteria. Um, if the patient has had an anatomical splenectomy, then they need to, and they're not just functionally asplenic, then they will need to be on penicillin continuously. Yeah, and there's also, if you look into cootie shots, there's a special section that discusses um, functional and anatomic asplenia in particular and the vaccines that you need to know for that. So definitely listen to that as well to kind of tie these concepts together. I think another really big infection that sickle cell patients are prone to is a parvovirus. So parvovirus can cause an aplastic crisis in sickle cell patients, and that's generally because those sickled red blood cells don't have the lifespan that a normal red blood cell does. So a normal red blood cell has a lifespan of about 120 days. So if any um, non-sickle cell patient develops parvovirus, they have enough storage of hemoglobin to get them through that. However, a sickle cell patient will not have the, the sickle cells do not have that long lifespan and um, can result in an aplastic crisis for these patients. And again, I, I feel like we're literally just covering the highest yield things, and this is certainly something that can come up. You may see a sickle, a sickle cell child um, who's been having kind of cough and cold symptoms, and then they show you their um, CBC, and then they want to ask you what is potentially causing this, and it's going to be parvovirus. Yes, definitely. That's one of the high, high yield questions on sickle cell patients. So I think um, to recap for sickle cell disease, keeping in mind that they can be diagnosed at birth off of their newborn screen, hemoglobin electrophoresis is confirmatory around the age of six months, starting them early on penicillin prophylaxis until they get all of their vaccines in and all of their extra vaccines, and keeping an eye out for fevers in this population because that's a true emergency. All right, great. All right, I think we got a pretty good overview at this point of macrocytic, microcytic, and then the main normocytic being sickle cell. So what we're going to do is we're going to break here. We're going to separate into a, another section. Uh, so tune in for a section on inherited blood cell disorders. Mm -hmm.